Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Horny Goats, and this is episode one. Two goats climbing the mountain of life, eating Asian-American stereotypes for breakfast. You must be wondering who the fuck we are, right? I mean, who are these two bitches starting up with a new podcast in the sea of a million other podcasts? What makes us so special? On LA Bingo, this is like definitely the center (laughs) square. Like everyone has it filled out already, you know? Like has a podcast. Oh yeah, already, already down the middle. Easy. Bingo. Can you just like agree that like the year 2020 during this quarantine, everyone's like, I'm going to start a podcast. Yes. I mean, because we're home, we're either alone or stuck with a spouse or a partner and Mm -hmm. we need like an outlet because my husband Abe is sick of all of my jokes I'm basically (laughs) like a factory for dad jokes you know what I mean so basically you want to get yourself on a public platform and spread it to the world wide web without anybody doing active feedback I just want people people to know that shoes and socks are like I mean sandals and socks are perfectly appropriate Um, but we named the podcast two horny goats because we are both Capricorns Do you identify with being a Capricorn, Rox? Capricorns get a bad rep. Right? Like, they hate us. Like, everybody thinks we're super serious. Uh, We can be, I guess. Uh, And that we're ladder climbing, you know, ambitious. These are good things. But I also feel like people take them negatively. It could be cold, Mm. antisocial, tunnel visioned. People think of us as really hard workers with, but I think the main, I guess, bad variable or how people would see us in a negative negative light is how we're always striving for the top Mm. and not focusing on what's important in life yeah and i feel like if we were a retail store we'd be like office depot or like staples (laughs) like you know it's not like we're not gonna be armani you know but i feel like i feel like the misconception is that we're not romantics and I we're know. not creative, you know, they're like, we're so practical, so pragmatic, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're business oriented, but you and I are both artists. I, I think so. I try to be. I, 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 you know, I think you, when I think of you, I think of artist. When I think of me, I'm like, uh, trying to be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> no, you are an artist, so be stupid. But it's, it's different because I think that, you know, obviously horoscopes, they are, they can be a good guide. They don't have to be everything. We're not like, you know, we're not, this isn't a horoscope reading podcast but we happen to connect on a lot of things because rox and i um we find that we we do work hard and we do play hard which is part of our you know stereotype um but we also laterally think very creatively and colorfully and we are here to change your perception of capricorns we're here to change our perception about a lot of things which is why we created this podcast because it's like like capricorns like being asian american it's like Mm -hmm. you people see us or like the collective sees you a certain way but you don't identify as that because we have a range of identities we have a range of personalities our diaspora is so different and it's the same with capricorns i mean i'm only going to touch on this a little bit um but like astrology it's like capricorn is your sun sign so your values your hard work like both you and i work really fucking hard Mm -hmm. but like all of our aspects our planets and everything else make up our personality and it's all very colorful very different so it's like it's unfair Especially in the way that the world is happening now and yeah. what this year has been unveiling to us, you can't see people and put them under a broad definition of something of what you know. It's true. Yeah, it's true. And I definitely come from, uh, my mom has uh, five siblings. Four of them are, are females. Um, wait, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> uh, six siblings, five of them wow. female. Yeah. And um, they, it is like going to... Like going to a family reunion um, in the in household was kind of like being in a den of like female lions and they are like savage and vicious in the best way. And if you can't come at them with zippy enough quips, like you are going to get buried. So very strong female personalities, um, always like kind of the head of their households in terms of in terms of thought leadership. Um, Mm. And I grew up with my mom being the breadwinner. My dad, I mean, I grew up with terrible ponytails and braids because my dad was a stay-at-home dad. Shout out to Timothy Liang. Um, Love that you learned how to braid. It wasn't your best, um, you know, skill, but that's okay. (laughs) And, you know, so I grew up with my dad, 
doing pickup and drop offs, taking me to gymnastics, taking me to Chinese school. Uh, and my mom left every morning at eight thirty, came home at six and we got like two hours with her at night. And that was my example of like a woman. And so even, even as an Asian female, my mom was outspoken, uh, went out to work, uh, very, you know, tough as nails. And mm. I think I'm not even trying to break any sort of stereotype, but the mold that I was, that was my example was very different, I think, or not, not heard about enough. I think it, it's not that uncommon. It's just that it's not spoken about like in the mainstream that often, you know what I mean? What's crazy is that like in Taiwanese American and Taiwanese families, it's like we have a patriarchal system, right? right. It's still like the man's the head of the household. But strangely enough, I think the women hold the most power in yeah. our families. Like, Totally. They are like they are the ones who make all the decisions about everything. So, I mean, we're definitely going to be talking about that too. I mean, family is a very deep well to dive into. Yeah. Um, so let's go into the other aspect of um, our name. So horny, horny. So let's talk about sexuality Hornay. a little bit. Yes, horny, horny. <laughs> and why does this matter? So a little background on me um, because. <laughs> just love talking about myself. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I feel like I'm verbal diarrheaing, but <laughs> I, I'm a pastor's kid. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, insert all the rap songs about PKs, um, especially <laughs> girls. Um, I grew up with a very, very limited discussion of sex and sexuality and, it was hyper conservative, and I still remember having an, a, a pretty wild argument um, with one of my youth pastors saying, like, you know, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, how come, like, if you sin, like, in this way, um, you're not getting into heaven? Uh, specifically about, you know, homosexuality, which was a very hot topic uh, and still is, but much more widely accepted today, thankfully. But back in the 90s and early aughts, it was still very common in church to hear that narrative. And it was so damaging. And mm. um, and I have some, you know, beloved family members who came out during that time and it was such an uphill battle and it was so heartbreaking. But suffice it to say, there was no talk of sex and sexuality in a constructive, in intelligent educational way and in fact like the one sex ed video that our church watched basically had a scene where the lady has a piece of duct tape and does the whole tapes it to herself pulls it off sticks it to someone else pulls it off sticks it and by the end of the chain of 10 people this piece of tape is no longer sticky and it was basically slut shaming um but really trying to you know show the impurity of sex and also just very damaging um, kind of like Madonna views of women um, in terms of like women should be pure and untouched. And then add to that being Asian American, and I don't know about you Asian, Asian American peeps, but I never got a sit down like with my parents. Did you? Did you ever get a sit down with your no. parents? No, not at all. Thank you for sharing that because it's like, sex was just like this topic that you don't discuss. It's super, super, super taboo. Mm -hmm. And like, we had to discover it for ourselves and like, you know, us listening to like Esther Perel and like, you know, just learning about like eroticism and like sexuality and like everyone deserves to feel like a sexual being that you're like a goddess or, you know, or God or depending, you know, like you deserve to feel confident and sexy in your body and horniness, you know, for me represents like passion, a lust for life, like, you know, excitement about something. So I think that really, instead of being taught to be fearful of something like you being a certain way and not getting into heaven or like you like restraining your sexuality, restraining your horniness, like that is something we're fighting against. We're fighting against that oppression. We're fighting against that blindfold. We want to see ourselves. Right. So this is why it's like, when we say two horny goats, like, yeah, of course it's like cute (laughs) and funny. And like, you laugh at the word horny and it's like, but horny, like represents eroticism, represents excitement, lust for life, you know? And that's, I feel like we embody that, you know what I mean? And want to encourage everybody to do, do so as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, despite, 
what your beliefs are and what your, you know, religious boundaries are. Like that's mm-hmm. not what we're trying to infringe upon or 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 pass judgment on in any way. I I would definitely just say like I think the most heartbreaking thing is that I've also seen a lot of my Christian friends um once they get married, um this barrier of sex being dirty or um you know uh trespassing the sacred mm-hmm. it continues on it's not a light switch you know mm-hmm. and then you develop you can i've seen it where either people are disappointed because they got married pretty much to have sex like yeah. you know in terms of timing maybe this is really the person that they love um but the thing is like sex is such a small part of your actual overall life you know it, it's just a part of it um it's not all encompassing in any way and it's only it can be satisfying fulfilling but it's not satisfying i think on a level where you become a complete person once it happens oh i know exactly there's like that whole misconception about that like glorifying the marriage glorifying the union and then being able to have sex this elusive mysterious thing that you can finally do right once you get past that point but then and and then like there's also misconceptions about like oh maybe if i have sex if i feel desired then maybe i'll feel better about myself you know sex can also be used in a very self-sabotaging manner but like what we really want to discuss in this podcast is also about self-growth and like self-work and healing because like literally nothing can be done it's true your life can't be improved your career can't be improved your sex life love life can't be improved unless we all work on this right which is like the hardest thing yeah 100 percent. and i i remember i was a like i read cosmo like the bible growing up <laughs> and i would like highlight portions and like cut out certain things just to file away i mean i didn't kiss anyone till i was like 23 so it was not used in any way you know mm-hmm. but i i kept a rolodex of all of these you know methods and thoughts and tips but when you get into those situations and you're finally with another person, it's kind of like going to an improv class, which <laughs> some people, okay, I know some of you just paused Are the you going to do space work? Some and yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. <laughs> Please don't hate me for asking you what city and occupation. Um, but it's kind of like showing up to an improv class. You realize the most important thing is being present and, mm. and, sh- and like, showing up for whoever your scene partner is. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, sex is. It's, it's showing up for your scene partner and being 100% you and enthusiastic. Can I ask you a question? Yes. <clears throat> Regarding, like, uh, not being able to discuss sex with your family very early on in your religious household and then mm-hmm. you reading Cosmos and self-educating about sex and connecting with someone else physically when you got to that point of like kissing someone at 23 were you super in your head about it like what was that experience like for you I I felt like I had been cramming for the SATs you know like like you know when you study for this sorry but you know every everyone did the SATs back in the day kids I know they're like canceling them now but you I started studying for the SATs at 14 and I think my sisters started at 11 just because they're two to three years younger than me and whatever I was doing, they were doing. And finally you get to the SAT and like, you don't know what it's like until you get there and you've been cramming for it and you've taken practice tests, um, AKA me making out with like the mirror or the back of my hand, like, you know, just a little this action, um, and, and trying visualizations and, and, and you just, you don't know how you're going to perform until you get there. And I definitely felt a mix of nerves, um, a, a realization that you can't throw everything at the wall and hope it sticks. Um, and, um, just, a lot of anxiousness until I realized like, oh, you just have to show up with yourself. How about you? What was your first kind of experience like? I had my first kiss at 16. Oh, and it was, uh, it was very cute. It was very nice. I think things were building up between me and this person for like a very long time. We were also yeah. long distance back oh. in high school. It's like so stupid. Wait, where did they and live? Where did you live? He lived in San Francisco. Oh, it was That's crazy. Hot. It was one of those MySpace dates. <laughs> and MySpace? so I was doing Tinder and fucking like like online dating before anybody thought you, that was cool. Like I was I found this guy, he found me, we liked each other and like we did this for like a year and then wow. like he came down 
he's Asian, on like a badminton tournament. Oh my (laughs) gosh, that is the most Asian reason to travel. (laughs) And then like, and then we kissed each other in the back parking lot for the first time. And How then that was feel? like the only time I've ever seen him in real life. Oh my was- gosh. <laughs> that's, that's like the perfect first kiss though. Cause you kind of like set it up. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a surprise. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I think in, we could talk about like body dysmorphia and mm-hmm. self image. Like during this time, you know, it's like, um, I think I, it was hard for me to connect with anybody at my school. I don't think that like, it was hard to find myself attractive because I never fit that ideal. I know our moms always wanted us to be the best version of ourselves, but it's really hard when you don't fit that, you know what I mean? No matter how hard you tried. So I always thought that maybe if somebody got to know me for my personality, like then they would actually like me and, you know, hopefully the physical wouldn't be that disappointing, you know? So like, he and I managed to build up something and like send pictures and like, you know, I don't think there was video chat at the time at all, but too like advanced. the internet it was too it. advanced. But then like when we saw each other in real life, it was, it was very cute, you yeah. know? And so that was, I think that was like the first part in sort of deconstructing my super negative self image of myself or thinking that I'm ugly or like all of these things. Like, I mean, girl, I mean, this is like a whole other topic, but it's like, um, having to realize your own beauty yeah um is such a fucking journey yeah you know no for um, sure i'm still working on it what about you i am definitely still working on it uh, as you know i was a very late bloomer um and i definitely had that thought i was like i'm just gonna be myself um and someone will love me for who i am and i think the sad thing is that never really transpired for me, um, which I know doesn't make it untrue. But once I in my like when I was like 20, 21, actually started to take care of my appearance and wear makeup and, you know, follow fashion Pinterest or whatever. I still remember um, <laughs> how you look like in college. Like you had I mean, no makeup on, no eyebrows and just like these it was, glasses. <laughs> it was ratchet. But I thought so I was cute. like, oh, like when someone falls for me, like you know, they're really going to fall for me because there's nothing external that's attracting them at all. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I struggled with, you know, I think we we struggled with different body things. For me, it was definitely um, acne and confidence and, you know, uh, like probably posture because confident people stand up straight. But I remember right before heading out for winter formal, this was my first dance. I was so excited and I'm about to leave the house. And my mom says to my sister, "Um, can you shave her back? (laughs) <laughs> what? Yeah. And like I was it was like no time. So the whole night I'm out at this dance and I'm like, you know, standing with my back towards the wall um because I'm There I'm is afraid. no hair on your back, Priscilla. I've seen your back. There's you no know, hair on your back. When your mom says there's hair on your back, I still think I'm like Chewbacca back there. No offense to Chewbacca. It's not on Chewbacca. It's just that, you know, that's not I think what a human Asian woman is supposed, supposed to look, to look like. like seals. We're supposed to look like Ali Wong says we're supposed to look like seals. I know, so. especially Asians, you know, like hairless. Um but yeah, so that that was tough and I think I think once I did start to pay attention to my uh, appearance I still didn't get, I don't get a ton of, um, attention from like males or, or females. Um, but I, I noticed a change in myself and I noticed that I, I wasn't afraid to, let's say if I saw a professor on campus, I used to just duck away because I I wasn't confident in my appearance and I, I was nervous about it. Um, but once I started taking care of myself, I approached people very differently. I wouldn't be afraid to talk to a professor. I wouldn't be afraid to go to office hours. Um, and more than anything like that helped me, um, just want to take care of my appearance for me and not in a vain way. Cause I think the way my mom framed it, never let me wear glitter or makeup or anything like that was that if you took care of yourself, it was somehow vain. And I think that that is not true. And I think makeup is one of the f- most amazing one evolutionary tools. <laughs> and secondly, it, it's so much fun cause you're just expressing yourself with your face. I also think that like Capricorns get better with age. Um, (laughs) And I I think that every woman does too, you know, as they continue to grow and like learn how to like love themselves and take care of themselves. I think there's a lot of things. Yeah. um, But we, we just really want to speak up because this year has just been 
showing us the truth behind a lot of things that haven't come to the surface, but have been brewing underneath for a very long time. And I think it's time that we speak up honestly, you know, about what it is that our truth is. And like Priscilla and I have talked about how scared we are to talk about, you know, some of these topics on the show, just because it really challenges to be truly vulnerable on a public platform. But um, in doing so, we hope that it resonates with a lot of you who are feeling the same way or feel like you're afraid to discuss or like have a safe space to talk about some of these things, because not all of us are so fortunate where we get to have friends like each other, where um, we could speak so frankly about such topics and such fears, you know, so we hope that this could be a space for you. you Yeah, we want to be your two besties and be listening and learning from all of you too you know and Mm -hmm. hearing you guys out and you know being part of that conversation together and if you can feel a little bit seen or heard by the things we say great if it's not your you know exactly in agreement with you that's fine like that's what this is about is like you can veer off the beaten path and it's okay you don't need permission to be who you are no no, you are beautiful and amazing just the way you are. Go on with your bad self. Yeah, go on with your bad self, bitch. <laughs> go on with the bad self, bitch. So let's uh, pivot a little bit. We were thinking about, like, you know, Priscilla and I were reflecting about what people would really want to listen to, yeah. you know, in terms of, like, what resonates with them. And for us, the biggest thing we want to bring to light is what it's like to navigate your 30s. Mm. Okay? So, like... Okay, so 30s. When you were like 12 years old or when you were super, super, super young, Mm -hmm. did you ever daydream about like how you would turn out in your 20s and your 30s? And and what did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I am so excited to hear what baby Roxy thought, like (laughs) power like Roxy was going to be like in her 30s. I definitely had two... um, two trains of thought like on the one hand I was like I'm gonna have the big shoulder pads I'm gonna have a big (laughs) perm I'm definitely gonna have a house and a car and a husband and kids and a dog um and I'm gonna have all the things um and I'm I'm gonna have things figured out I mean which is a common refrain I think when you're young you think that 30 is like kind of some sort of threshold where you you start to figure the world out Mm-hmm. Which is not true. Um, but then on the <laughs> other side of things, I don't know if you know about a very specific genre of um, romance novels, which are Christian romance novels with a character with cancer. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. No, please educate me I, on this. kid you not, this was my genre of choice. Um, and I, so there's an author named Lurleen McDaniels. I don't know how many books she's written, but in every book, pretty much there's a character who they, they fall in love. They, they're 16. They have some sort of connection and then they find out that they have cancer or they both have cancer meet whilst getting chemo. And then one of them always dies. The other one always, like one of them always dies or like gets a leg amputated or like loses an eye or like and these are all like real <laughs> christian romance lit with a twinge of mortality just mixed in there like an epoxy it sounds like those early korean dramas yes totally <laughs> where you like lose your eyes yeah yeah exactly and then they donate your eyes but then like yeah it's so much they kill then he kills himself for her or like whatever yeah. it's like a lot Yeah. So I thought I was going to die by 16. Like, no (laughs) doubt. I thought I was going to meet a nice guy in a cancer ward. And, and, you know, I'm really sorry. I I don't mean for this to be insensitive. Part of the reason why um, this was such a big theme in my life was my 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 mom said of the family, they are BRCA2. Um, they, they carry the gene for breast cancer. And so my grandfather died when I was young of pancreatic cancer. I've had three, uh, two aunts and an uncle pass away, um, made a film about it. My grandmother passed away. So it, it, um, I think it was my way of coping uh, mm. with uh, having cancer in my family. And um, so I thought I was going to, I always would run downstairs to my mom and be, I would swear I found a lump, you know, because that's what we talked about all the time. I knew about white cell um, counts, white blood cell counts when I was, you know, 11, because that's what we talked about at home. Um, And so I think that I thought I was going to die young. 
That was like well, definitely top of mind. <laughs> I was like, don't need to worry about 30 because I will be dead after meeting a nice boy in a chemo ward. We're going to get chemo together. He's going to sing me a song as I drift off to the heavens. Wow, that's quite romantic. That's <laughs> right? super poetic yeah. and very No dark. taxes. I don't so, have to do taxes. Well, basically, so now that you're actually in your 30s and yeah. you haven't passed away, thank goodness. Yeah. But like looking back on that, do you feel like, oh, yeah, like I like my life the way it is now? Like, Yeah, I mean, I've doubled my expectations. Um, and I think <laughs> life, to be fair, I think life is both much more mundane and much more exciting than you can ever expect, you know? And I think like what we were talking about the other day was just that, um, a lot of things that shape who we are when you're young, you think it's going to be certain positive things, but ultimately it's like, it's certain struggles that you've been through that end up teaching you the best lessons. So for sure. Yeah. How about you? What was 12 year old Roxy thinking? Where were Dude. you set the scene? Dude, 12 year old Roxy was like, I was Capricorn to a fucking T. Like, I, I was so mature when I was younger. I was so serious. I was ASB? all about, like, yes, I was <laughs> ASB. I was, I was literally everything. I like played violin, took karate, you know, like, I wanted to be the best fucking, Hell like, yeah. Like, like version of myself wanted to be valedictorian, but I'm like really bad at schoolwork and I can't read, you know, just like all this shit. And I, I just, I just wanted to be, you know, cause I lived on the East coast. I was in New Jersey and like yeah. all of those Asians were like gate kids and like special gifted, talented, whatever the fuck. And yeah. I wanted to be with them. Like I just, I felt like an outsider my mm-hmm. whole life. And, um, it was just, it was just so hard to try and be a part of that when it's not even innately in your nature, but you're young, you don't know that. So I would daydream all the time being like, oh my God, my life is hard now. Oh, LOL, little Roxy, you (laughs) fucking stupid little piece of shit. It's like, you have no idea how hard life actually gets. You just get better at handling shit. You know what I mean? But like, I would daydream that when I was 24, you know, like I'm always like, okay, double my life. Like, what's that going to be? And I'm like, I'm going to be graduated from Princeton University with a major in mathematics. I don't know what you use mathematics for. Honestly, I still don't know. And that I'm going to play lacrosse. I don't know why I said that. And I'm like, I'm going to marry a white man. I remembered specifically, I was like, I'm going to marry a white man. Because at that time, my, I was conditioned. My mom taught me that like, I could, you know, but because she was looking at things from like a social economic point of view, you know, it's it's Western centric. Yes. Um, She's like, to have an easier life, you should definitely marry someone white or someone who's Taiwanese, right? Yeah. All my aunts married white guys, so I have like three white uncles whom I love, but like, yeah, it's it's interesting that... Yeah, we were taught to learn that, you know, and then... And then, like, he, and then I'm going to have a white boyfriend, and then we're going to get married. I'm going to have kids by 28, and I'm going to have everything figured out, just like what you said. And then I remembered when I was 24, I, like, remembered this memory of, like, me daydreaming about myself. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, we were living in Culver City. We were living on Mentone Avenue. And, like, um, we were, I was, like, trying to make at least, like, $1,000 a month, like, doing freelance jobs, like, <laughs> trying to PA pick up coffee for people. and. Yeah. Like very, I think I just started dating somebody, but like feeling so lost and having none of my shit together. And we were so broke. We were so broke. Like it was, we were just living off Livingston. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) Our, our place was, we are one of our best friends, um, Rochelle, she was living in the living room. So it was basically like a three bedroom apartment on the west side and it was like what 1600 total it was it was a two bedroom because she lived in the living room yeah so like so like, so like we, we basically <laughs> with three bedroom um yeah it was real i mean now now the the, the world is completely different the market is completely yeah. different and things have definitely shifted in that time but and now, and then i remembered i don't know priscilla and then i started daydreaming about like what life in my 30s would be like and i kept like making this fucking plan for myself like okay if i didn't make it at this time at least by the time I'm 30, I would have some of my shit together. Yeah. Right? Like, I wanted to be on 30 under 30 lists. Like, that, that, that's what I was obsessed with Which in I my 20s. Which I think is so fucking toxic, yeah. don't you? It's toxic. Yeah. It's, it's, it messes with your mind. And I think if you're on that list, it kind of gives you, like, I don't know. You're like, okay, have I peaked? You know? And then if you're not on that list, then you have major FOMO. So I think it's damaging on both ends of the aisle. Well, when did you get to that point where you're like, if I continue to give myself these sorts of toxic expectations, I will never be happy? Like, when did you have your revelation? That's a good question. Um, I think 
I, I, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but I remember every friend or mentor I had who was in their 30s or 40s, they would just say, once you're in your 30s, you don't care what people think about you. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, because in your 20s, it's such a huge part of your mind. You know, it's such a huge part of how you conduct yourself and why you do certain things. And I, I think for me, um, once I hit a certain point where I was able to be like, fuck it, this is who I am. That's when I was able to just really come into my own and feel more comfortable. And it did happen to be like right around when I hit my thirties. Um, but it, it couldn't have, I couldn't have learned it. That, that, that's the frustrating thing. Like I couldn't have learned it from a book or off the back of a cereal box. Like I, I had just had to go through it and that's the most difficult thing. And I think when I've met younger women now and I do want to mentor them and be a presence in their life, like I have to remember patience. And I think the first few women that I maybe tried to mentor or really like support, I was so impatient at wanting to like push them through the eye of this needle um, that I ended up fracturing our relationships, you know? And so Mm. that took a lot. It it was very humbling. Um, But I think for me, Um, I'm still trying to get to a point where I feel like I have it together. How about you? I mean, uh, I agree with you. There's something weird. By the way, we just want everybody to know I'm 32 years old. Priscilla is 31. So we're still in our early 30s. You know what I mean? So this, this revelation, this new cycle for us is still relatively fresh. But I agree that like something switched inside of me when I turned 30, like literally the moment I turned 30, something subconscious shifted in a monumental way. It was just like, Roxy, you are fucking done with dealing with toxic people, people, you know, saying yes to work you don't want to do. Like there was like my inner goddess coming out and be like, okay, girl, enough shit. You know what I mean? Like it's time for you to actively start like building the life that you want and loving yourself the way that you deserve and like calling in everything that you want in life. And I will tell you, I think that's when like I started coloring my hair and that's when like, you know, my skin started clearing up and there was a lot of tough shit that I also had to go through that year. But like, it was wonderful, like coming out of that. I think for me seeing you, um, one of the most, the, the, the times I was most proud of you wasn't when you were booking seven different shows, wasn't when you were working round the clock, wasn't when you were just going set to set to set to set to set to set. Mm, mm-hmm. It was when you took a year off. Mm. And well, <laughs> I don't year. even know if it ended up, be- well, this year too, but I think it was like 2017 where you kind of took a sabbatical for maybe six months. Was it 2017, 2018? It was like really not intentional though, because the thing is that like, you know, you know, our nature, we always want to be doing something or thinking about what's coming next. And there's an anxiety that comes with that, but it just so happens that that year, nothing was happening for me. Like, like no matter what I did, no matter what I tried to conjure, there was nothing coming my way. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. You know, but that's when I saw the biggest change in you. Right. Because I saw you reprioritize your life. I saw Mm -hmm. you basically I've never seen you leave a party early until that year where you were like, I just want to go home and get sleep. Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, one of the best things about being in your thirties is all your friends understand that, you know, (laughs) but you know, when we were like 27, 28, I was like, gosh, why is Roxy taking time for herself? I'm kidding. But like, it was just so amazing to then see you take a break for like six months, which was terrifying, I'm sure. But on the other side (sighs) of that, you came out with like, amazing scripts you came out with an ability to say no and you came out with a clearer vision of what you wanted to of what your voice was as a as a creative not just as a director or producer you know that's very true oh my god all of it's coming back to me i remember (laughs) that year now yeah that year i traveled a lot i broke up with my long-term relationship and it was just like a huge shift in learning and i think it's the year i got laid off and i know this because we had brunch a lot and you can't have brunch when you have like a real full-time job on a wednesday you know um we used to go to bon juke in uh k-town oh my Gotta love Banju. Which is just like a kanji place that's so sick. But yeah, I think for for me, I I feel like I had a similar experience where, like I said, I was a late bloomer. Um, In my music career, I felt like I was doing things all the time, but nothing ever really took off. And then in 2018... I start. I put out an album. I, mm. I started a music program at Hotel Indigo. I was doing gigs. I was traveling for gigs for the first time. Everything seemed on the up and up. 
but I was, I was miserable and, and I became an asshole. Like the people I was around, I felt I was competitive or I was belittling or I, I really thought I was something. And, and, you know, I got too big for my britches. Like they split up my ass crack. Like, you know, they, they were too small. And, um, the next year, my, my husband, his name's Abraham, um, sweet, sweetest man, drummer. Um, he got cast in this play, um, called Cambodian rock band by Lauren Yee. And the play got moved up to OSF, which is Oregon Shakespeare Festival, up in Ashland, Oreo, uh, Oregon. Or- <laughs> Oreo. Oreo. <laughs> Clearly, that's what's on my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it is like an Oreo. It's like surrounded by like dark mountains, and it's all white inside. <laughs> wow, it's like what your subconscious says to I you. I know, I know. Freudian slip. Um, it's true. And I, I love, I love Ashland. I love the people of, of OSF, and I know, you know, obviously they're getting hit really hard. So, our th- you know, my thoughts have been with them a lot. Mm. But living there for a year not being part of the theater company. And you know how much I like to get involved. (laughs) I was basically an outsider attached to an insider. And I spent the majority of my time alone. And all of a sudden, all of the things that I had built up for myself in LA the year prior really started to come crumbling down in terms of like, it's kind of like, uh, I, I know... It's like at the end of days in judgment, you hold your, your pile of straw and then you walk through like the, um, doorway of judgment and only, and all the straw gets burned down and all that's left is what's substantial, right? Mm -hmm. That was that process for me. It was a walk through the fire. It was, it was a, a purifying, um, ego cleansing, ego crushing, um, time for me. And, and I spent so many days unable to get off the couch, um, unable to muster up the courage to create anything. Um, and I, I felt like I was in a Teflon bowl, constantly running up the sides, trying to get out and just sliding down. And my, Mental health took a toll. My physical body took a toll. Um, Whether it was psychosomatic or not, I started having throat issues where I would lose my voice on the regular. Um, And if I used it at all, I would lose my voice. And if you're a singer, that's one of the scariest things that can happen. Um, And I basically had to build up my person from scratch. I had to build who, who am I? What do I stand for? What do I care about? What what are things that make me me? I had to rebuild that entire conception from uh, that entire concept from scratch because I had built basically like a film set that I could uh, like my own. um, I built up my own Truman show where I had the people in my life who would give me enough encouragement. I had the venues to play at to make me feel like a musician. I had the, you know, I had all these set pieces available in my life to make me feel um, like I, I was this badass, big, whatever person. And the reality was I'm just a person. I'm just a person. And but I, I couldn't really accept myself until I could face myself. And it took moving to Ashland to do that. And I wasn't productive. I had all these thoughts, like big city thoughts about moving to a small town. I thought I was going to change the town. I thought I was going to write a movie script. I thought I was going to, you know, X, Y, Z. I thought I was going to become the beloved, like Dolly Parton of Ashland. You know what I mean? <laughs> and none of those things happened. In fact, nothing happened. I stayed on the couch. The best I could do was cook a meal in the kitchen. Um, and I had to face who I was, what my weaknesses were, and what I wanted to stand for. How about you? What was like, t- what's this time right now in isolation? What has it been like for you? Take me from March until today. Mm, my god i think my life has always always been like such a rat race you know it's always been about the hustle and like if you look at my calendar it's always filled up with things like every single day there's like a whole schedule of things and it helps me because like i'm naturally anxious and if i don't have a plan like it really scares me i'm not somebody who is spontaneous i mean i am sometimes just to be cute and cool but like innately and being if i'm being honest with myself it's like i like structure a lot so 
when all when the rug was completely pulled out from under our feet. You know, at the time I had a movie that was about to go in a couple of weeks. I was going to go to Indiana for a short project I had. And then 2020 was like in my vision. Like I was like, this is my year. Everything's going to happen. And then it happened for everybody. Like the unexpected happened. And then you just sort of had to recalibrate. And my experience is that like I have to be in self-isolation. I know that, you know, some people get to have roommates and families and partners and some of those situations are good and bad, you know, and I consider myself very lucky to be able to spend this time with myself. But I am somebody who does feed off, you know, people's energy. And for me to not have that, it was really hard because I'm dealt with like negative thoughts every single day and having to combat them. So then I created a schedule for myself. I started painting, playing my violin again. Just anything to take up space was very useful for me. At this point, I'm excited because like, I am going to start going back to work um, next month. I have a show up in Utah. So, um, But then that transition is going to be scary too because everyone's doing things differently. I, I think transitioning is very difficult. I almost forgot, Priscilla, what mm. my life was like before this. Like. Yeah. We've been here for four months now, at least. Yeah. So it takes 21 days to form a habit or like to form a routine. And I I, I feel anxious. I, I have to be honest. I do, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but humans are adaptable. And I think, I think the scariest part is being unable to just focus on your own bubble because we're always impacted by the information we're getting from the outside world about the things that we can't control. Yeah. So question for you then, because I've definitely in my darker moments during this time, I'm like, what a waste of the dwindling days of my youth, you know? <laughs> like, <I'm, laughs> Yes, I think about that too. Right? So yeah. in terms of just social expectations, how do you feel as a female aging? Like, and, and now oh aging publicly, you know? Oh my goodness, fuck. You know, it's crazy because like... I, I don't know about you, but it's like when I look at myself, I'm like, bitch, you're 32 years old. And, and like older women would be like, you're so young. You have your whole life ahead of you. And then my biological aspect of myself is like, you need to go and sit on a dick and have kids. You know what I mean? And like, and, and I, I, I have to be honest, I've never been this horny before. Yeah. Like, like in my twenties, I think I was, I was fine. Like sex was like what you said, just a part of life, but it yeah. wasn't anything I lusted for. But like in my thirties, there's something that switched within me. That's just like, you must procreate and you <laughs> must do it now or else your eggs are going to dry up like right. dried squid and just die, yeah. you know? And I don't even know if they're going to be seasoned properly in the same way. So it's yeah, like, totally. like it was, is it going to be Tabasco or not? You know, I know a thousand yeah. percent. And I am, I, but then like when I sit down and I honestly, have a dialogue with myself I'm like is this even what I want Mm -hmm. you know like do I want to have a kid at all like in this climate in this world like do I want to bring one in aren't we so thankful I mean cheers to all those parents that are able to be like homeschooling their kids and working right now but it's something I know I can't handle mentally or emotionally right now you know so I just we need to stop like putting such extreme expectations of ourselves because so many of these things we can't control. And you have to ask yourself nature versus nurture. Is this what your um, upbringing has taught you? And it's, is, is it your upbringing that's expected of you to like make these decisions or is it really you having an honest dialogue with yourself about your Mm. own personal wants and needs? Totally. What about you? Do you feel that desire and that craziness? Yeah. I mean, I would say, couple years ago, I moved into a, a condo building and um, my neighbors across the hallway are these uh, two. Now they're both septuagenarians at the time. I think uh, Beth was 65 and I think John had just turned 70, give or take. And these are two, you know, I guess to the external world, like two seniors who live it up. Um, John is the best dressed person I've ever met. And Beth is just so intelligent. I mean, they're both intelligent, but Beth is just like brings this like vibrance to every aspect of her life and Mm -hmm. also has the coolest glasses. Um, We went out all the time, like on Friday nights and got plastered and John outdrank my husband like almost (laughs) every week. It was crazy. (laughs) I would say they're, they're two of my best friends. Mm. Um, and I always see them at your shows. (laughs) 
Yeah. They're so cute. And, you know, um, I think if I hadn't met them, I would have a much worse complex of what life was going to be like when you were older. Because from them, what I constantly learn is that there's no prescription for how you need to act as an elderly mm-hmm. person. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, I don't even want to call them seniors or elderly because they don't act like that. Like they will bar hop until two, three in the morning and then they'll live, they'll, they'll fly to Italy and live there for about two months as Beth takes cooking classes and John, um, he, he writes in the morning and then he goes to eat whatever they make at the cooking class. Like this is how they spend their time. And it just seems like life is actually limitless. And you don't need to um, put all these brackets on it, you know, and and you Mm -hmm. don't need to contextualize it just with your age. Um, That being said, a lot of my friends, especially ones that I met in college when I was still deeply entrenched in the church, they're on their second or third kid. Um, So I have these two influences in my life. And believe me, they both have a counter pull on each other. So I feel like I sit I oscillate between the two. I'm like a fan. That's just like half the day I'm like blowing here and half the day blowing the other way. Um, And I am still struggling to figure out what that really means for me. Um, Because I always, I was telling my husband this week, I was like, I'm so glad I didn't marry like a I don't know, a worship leader at 22. And, and, and for those of you who did, that's great. And, and I know that would have been a good life. Um, but for me, I, I, didn't, I didn't find love the way I wanted to find love, which was basically to like meet a missionary at 22 and like move to like, you know, some other country together and, um, you know, serve for the rest of my, I thought that was in the cards for me. But that was actually after years of learning in the church to eliminate my wants, to eliminate my desires. And I'm saying, I'm not saying if you want that, that that's bad. It's just the fact that I didn't actually get a chance to decide whether I wanted that or not. I was just brainwashed and constantly told to relinquish and relinquish and relinquish whatever my desires were. And in fact, to have a desire to have a pursuit was in some way guilt inducing because it was basically saying you're not willing to go along the path that God has set out for you. And that in and of itself, now I can see is such a damaging rhetoric. Um, and it, it, it makes it so like, if I'm by myself, I cannot make a decision, um, on like what place I want to go eat or what place I want to go. Because I, I, and if I'm planning for friends, I will take all of their preferences into account. I will make an itinerary. We will be there within the day. We will have tickets. We will have reservations. We will have all the things. But if I'm by myself, I will literally sit there and do nothing because I was never supposed to want anything. And so it has been an exercise with myself and with my life coach to learn how to set out what you actually like and to follow through on it. It's like literally putting yourself last and to be of service to everybody but yourself. Exactly. This leads me to my next question Mm -hmm. about like, you know, I think all this social construct and social expectations, like your life being determined by external factors rather than you creating your own destiny, right? Like, I know we all have destiny. I really do believe in that. But I also feel like we have choice over our decisions, right? And over our actions. But what is happiness? You know what I mean? Like, Happiness is such this elusive term. People are like, maybe if I get married, I'll be happy. Maybe if I get this job, I'll be happy. Maybe if I have kids, I'll be happy. But we're like on this endless pursuit of this desire to have something that fills that emptiness that's within us. But no one ever really seeking to find it. Like there's so many women I know, you know, older generations that aren't as maybe tuned in or tapped in because this generation has really allowed us to do self-work and like putting the lens on ourselves and like really confronting our shadow and our demons in order to heal from those things. But like before it's like, Oh, the society or like my family or my culture tells me that like, as long as I do X, Y, and Z, like I'll have that life that is supposed to be like desirable or like the one that people want, but I don't feel happy. You know what I mean? So what is like happy? What is happiness and what is it to you? I think that, and I think I I definitely got this from a TED Talk. So 
but I think if we, the way our minds work, if we set goal posts for happiness, once we reach them, our mind will immediately set new goal posts for happiness. Yeah. And so then right. you get into a losing battle of chasing happiness. Um, and, I, and I think for me, the work that I've done personally um, and the people that I see that are happy, um, or at least, you know, say they are to me, um, is just realizing the here and the now mm. and learning in that groundedness to be okay with the good and the bad um, of your current state. Because the fact is, like, you're never going to be, like, every day I'm going to get a new pimple. Like, I'm never going to be <laughs> pimpleless, you know? Yes. But most days, like, if, if I pull back and I'm not just staring at the pimple itself, I can appreciate my whole person and my whole st- status. Um, and I think, I think a big issue, too, is, like, there's a dissonance there because we have everything that we have and we ought to be happy. We have everything we need to be happy in quotes. Mm. Most of us, right? right? Like I have a roof over my head. I have running water. I have food to eat. Um, you know, I have a car to drive. I have enough clothes to last me the rest of my life. I don't need another piece of clothing. Um, and so we have all the things that should make us happy only to realize like these aren't the things that make up happiness. And I also think that it's interesting that you put down as a note here, it's like comparison is the thief of joy Mm. because like we live in a world where internet's all around us. There's always like somebody who has something better than you, someone who has a better family than you, a better car than you, a better career than you. It is so difficult. Like I remembered when like Instagram started happening and like influencer life started happening and you're just like constantly on your phone, like, you know, major FOMO from like someone eating a certain dish that you've always wanted to try. Like, like just living in that, I wish I could, but I just don't have that mentality is extremely damaging to yeah. your pursuit of happiness. Remember when we were the age where everyone was getting engaged? Yeah, oh, I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> still very single here. Okay, no, but, but yes. you know, like um, I feel like when we were like 24 to 27, everybody got engaged. It was like. Like every week it was like every Wednesday yeah. you'd like be like, we've been saving this information since Saturday just to take time for ourselves. And, and I'm really not trying to mock it because you, everyone deserves happiness in their own way, but it does become commodified yeah. when we are viewing it just as a 2d screen. Um, and it becomes its own thing at like right. you, your 3d celebration is a beautiful, you know, uh, you know, milestone in your life that it's so happy for you but me experiencing on a 2d screen in the dark while i'm eating ice cream alone in my bed it becomes a different thing it becomes something that i need to compare myself to you know we just need to let everybody know that it the truth is never what you see on a 2d screen no every time i'm like roxy you met xyz celebrity how was it and she's like come here (laughs) so what happened was Let me tell you the tea, girl. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. always, I mean, it, it, life is not like that. Life is yeah. not an Instagram picture. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm glad we're sort of coming out of it. And, like, people are daring to have more real conversations and, like, more real dialogue, especially with this year that is 2020, the yeah. burning, like, dumpster fire that well, is this year. And how Gen Zs have really come to our rescue. They are and, literally going to save us. Yeah. They're going to save us from ourselves. And so happy for that. And then <laughs> it's interesting to think about these are the kids with the parents who probably bought, like, a, like a, either a DSLR or, like, you know, some sort of full frame camera and started composing shots with them and, you know, with, with, with great, you know, F stop ISO like settings and, you know, filtered the shit out of them. And, you know, and these are the kids that are like, fuck this. I'm showing my double chin on TikTok all day, every day, because fuck the aesthetic. And this and let's generation actually do something is important. so incredible. They are radical. They are dismantling the foundation of everything that has been built up that was oppressive and systemic. And this, I feel like this whole year, the theme is that, you know what I mean? Just like breaking systemic oppression. Like <laughs> that's what the show is. And that's what everything is. I'm loving them 
also attack millennials so accurately because ouch it hurts but also fuck yeah you're right we are a we came up in like the early 2000s like we are a vapid generation like paris hilton was like like no offense to her but like she she was like iconic like and she had very little substance you know I, i mean that's the age we grew up in and 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 then we pioneered basically social media, which started so vapidly and now has morphed into something that actually, you know, encounters conversation and discourse and dialogue. Yeah, it's created a lot of good yeah. for sure. But just just be wary of like how much time you spend on the Internet and like how much oh that sort of like because because in the end, it's like you just have to be present with yourself. I think it's what you said before about like living in the now, you know is so important because like my anxiety comes from fear of the future because like my perception of the world going through what I've gone through, like, it's like, this is really, it's really difficult for me to see how it could all end badly as well. And I think it takes a lot of work to be like, Hey, that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, just put out good energy into the world and focus on the now. What are you grateful for? Your life is very good. You know, I think that we also need to express a lot of gratitude. And sometimes when you feel like your mind is taking you down to those dark places again, like start making a list, you know, and start like thinking about like what it is that you do have and how rare and beautiful it is to have that. Mm. And I think that will help shift your perspective again and help you sleep better at night, you know? Mm. Well, I think on that note... Yes? I think we are ready to move on to our unsolicited picks. Unsolicited picks! (laughs) Yes, so uh, Priscilla and I really are passionate about community. And so Mm -hmm. we live in Los Angeles, so this is our home. We love it here, you know what I mean? Like, this is where we really built most of our life. And so we want to support some local businesses. I want to support books and, like, just things to just sort of help the artist community and people in small businesses. So Prisca. Um, yeah, I, I love LA. Um, it took me a while to realize that, right? Like, cause you know, you grow up in SoCal and LA is just like, I don't know, as a suburban kid, it's like, it's dirty. It's loud. <laughs> it's, you know, it's parking is terrible. Traffic is awful. But once you really live in LA for a long enough time and then find your tribe and find your spots. Um, it really opens up. It's a slow burn love, right? Slow burn. Yeah. I like it. Um, so one of my unsolicited picks. Yeah. Carnitas El Momo. So Carnitas El Momo is a taco stand, taco truck. They do carnitas and they basically take, um, pork butt, pork skin, they take like all different parts of the pork and then cook it together and put it on one taco. And Ooh. it is like a fatty, luxurious. It has almost like a stink of the pork, which I, you know, I love because, you know, we're Asian. Um, and um, they also do like mulitas, which is like the kind of like fried um, griddled taco. Mm-hmm. You will have a heart attack like if you eat too many, but I highly recommend checking them out <laughs> on Instagram and uh, they announce like when they open, when they close, um, they're, they're open for takeout. They're amazing. In terms We're going to have it in our show notes below so okay. you guys can check them out. Yes. And then um, my second one is, I know I'm late to the game, but I, during this quarantine, what my husband and I have been doing is watching um, everything Eddie Huang. So we just basically go on YouTube, type in Eddie Huang, and just watch for hours and hours and hours. And Eddie Huang is Taiwanese-American. Obviously, he wrote the book Fresh Off the Boat, which is an ABC sitcom. Um, but his other show, Fresh Off the Boat, um, like on Vice, is pretty life-changing for me. And, and at first, I just thought he was just like a punk punk kid who was you know i was like this is not my taste i'm a church kid i'm very straightforward but the more i started diving into his narrative and how food and taiwan shaped his life um and how being taiwanese and and being raised by asian american uh, being raised by immigrant parents um really shaped his life and helped and through it all like found his own narrative and found his own voice was the most encouraging thing that i've seen in so long and i think like i think different I think different minorities get attention at different times and I think right now Asian Americans are having a great moment but I think specifically if you're Taiwanese American 
I, I, I think there's a lot of like self-deprecation in that I never found our, inter- our story that interesting because it was our story. But having someone kind of uphold it and saying this is interesting and saying and telling all the personal growth that he's had in his life um, due to his experience really empowered me because then I was able to see in myself, oh my gosh, like this is why representation is so important. Um, because it's giving me the impetus to share my voice and to share, mm. you know, aspects of, of my life that are worth telling. Hence this podcast, bitch. I know. Yep. Um, so yeah, those are mine. What are yours, Rox? Okay. So um, recently I've been trying Nigerian food. Oh um, so I like recently went down like this dark hole on YouTube because guess what? All I do is spend time with myself all day. And I just wanted to try things that I've never tried before. And like, there is no Nigerian restaurant in the LA city proper. So like this, this place called Veronica's kitchen is like the highest rated Nigerian kitchen in like, I guess the greater Los Angeles area. So you have to go to Inglewood for it. And there's this incredible, like um this incredible woman named veronica like you walk in and she's immediately like a mom and she's just like what do you want you know like it's <laughs> it's inc- it strangely makes me feel like home you know what i mean like there's that that maternal factor of just like just calling you out just being super bold and like there's like no small talk it's just yeah. like what did you order you know what i mean <laughs> oh, okay do you need to spin with that you yeah. know and it, because she probably looks at me i'm the only asian person or non-black person yeah. in the restaurant and she's like <laughs> she probably doesn't know how to eat fufu properly you know what right. i mean so um like this girl needs a lesson (laughs) i tried it for the first time i ordered something called a goosey a goosey soup oh my god Uh, have you had it yes oh my god it's so good good. (laughs) it's so good um and then like i had fufu pounded yam as like you know to eat with it and literally i ate it in my car and i was like how come i've never tried this before and then i've been obsessed with that place like i think they low-key recognize me they just never like i would like drive 40 minutes to go to this restaurant and order takeout and like recently tried their like fried chicken and red stew like i don't know what red stew is but it's just like amazing and so i highly recommend this place it is a small business and it's mom and pop shop a black owned business in los angeles so please go support them uh, veronica's kitchen in inglewood and they have all the local nigerian I, not local but it's like all the nigerian favorites that um i think people would love and it's just great to like educate yourself through food and culture like yeah. having a deep appreciation for it like and i've had people like i took a photo of it on Instagram and then like I've had people say like oh that looks like not not my American friends were like you know who are just like oh what is that that looks like really weird and I'm like it's delicious like can we just like can I just like take just 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 love and accept be open-minded you know what I mean eat with your fucking hands you know like just do it like I I don't understand the apprehension like if you're open-minded to something something could show you how beautiful and mind-opening it could be so that is my restaurant pick um a book that I want to uh tell everybody about which I'm sure a lot of people in the community know about. It's called Your Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. I recently started following her on Instagram um, during the Black Lives Movement um, and uh, she's a, a poet and educator and activist. And uh, and then I realized that she had this book about radical self-love. So it's like there's a theme in this episode that we're talking about. It's sort of like dismantling um, sort of the systemic oppression, again, systemic oppression, or like how we view ourselves in a negative light, how we let other people determine how they see our bodies rather than how we see our bodies, right? right? But like radicalism is about like fully dismantling the foundation of everything you thought you knew about yourself so it takes a lot of fucking hard work and like it's going to be a hard process for you to realize that and it also tells us and warns us about our future actions on how we educate our children you know about loving their bodies and like you know not calling your your boobs like mosquito bites or like you know or anything like that that can make you feel lesser than yourself and you know men also i want to talk about this real quick about like the size of your penis you know what i mean like it doesn't matter like it really doesn't matter and it's like men usually get educated by like pornography and like pornography what size do you have to be to be featured in porn you know and that's all they saw and so it's like they feel you know emasculated they feel smaller you know in all senses but it really 
doesn't matter. No. Like, I'm just saying that now. And with Asian men, too, I mean, yes. that was used as a tool to be, to exactly emasculate our, our, the male gender in our race. I know. It makes them feel not sexy compared to everybody else. Exactly. And um, it's so damaging, you know, especially in the West, because I, you know, anytime I travel to Asia, all of a sudden, like, you see you realize like Asian men that are comfortable in their skin are represented on screen. Don't have this like negative, um, kind of uh, stereotypes around them. They stand up straighter. They're very confident. They're, they feel free to be even a little bit more effeminate and whether that's a cultural thing or a comfort thing like that, it's both, you know, they're more confident. They speak their mind and, you know, and this is a generalization, but when I traveled to Singapore, I noticed that so clearly because these were finally my Asian counterparts, just like we have European counterparts. These were our Asian counterparts who spoke English and I could finally like really have a conversation with them about what it was to be like an Asian man, not an Asian American man, but an Asian man. And I just noticed this deep level of comfort and confidence that so many Asian men in the U.S., they, their posture is different. They, they're a little more hesitant. Um, and this isn't their fault. This is because, like, you know, included in that model minority myth was an addendum that basically, like, Asian men have small penises. Yeah, and this goes back to, like, so much of our history. Yeah. Like, how they see Asian people, how they see the Chinese, the Japanese, all of that is sort of ingrained in our DNA. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so anyways, we just want to tell the dudes out there, your body is not an apology. Your okay? body's a so, wonderland. You know? Your body's a wonderland. So yeah. highly recommend this book. Oh, but I can't wait to uh, read that, Rox. It's such a good it's really, It's really great. I think you'll really like it. So guys, <laughs> we are nearing the end of our episode, so we're going to close out super soon. Yes. So um, I am actually a witch. So... <laughs> Let's get witchy, bitch. Let's get witchy, bitch. I have a, a tarot deck here that I uh, recently bought that's new, and they contain oracle messages for the collective. So, Priscilla, how about I pull one oh just gosh. as a message for everybody listening? Okay, I'm ready. Everyone send your send your vibes. Send your vibes right now. Right now. Send your vibes. Dear universe, dear spirits, uh, any messages that you want to give us? Oh, one just came out right away. Ooh, it's wild. Okay. Hey, now. So, this one says... Make better fucking choices. <laughs> hey, make better fucking choices. Okay. And the back says, if you are pissed at where you are, then stop taking yourself there. Ooh, dang. How um, relevant is that to okay. everything that we've been talking about today? So relevant. So relevant. Theme of our show. Yeah. Make so, better fucking choices. I think what this means is I should go get my car maintained. So that I don't break down on the side of the road because I, that's the shit I don't want to happen. So I should <laughs> do something about it. Is that okay? Is that, is that the Make card? better fucking choices, Priscilla, whatever that means to you. I think you already know what the message is for. So. Yes, bitch. Okay. I, wow. If that resonates with you in any way, please tweet at us. Um, we are on Twitter at two horny goats. That's T W O horny goats. Um, and we are also on, on Instagram and, uh, this is our first episode. So you can find all of our episodes at two hornygoats.com. Um, subscribe to us on Apple podcast or, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and you will always get brand new episodes into your app. How exciting is that? We are so excited to do this podcast. Um, the next 12 episodes, we're going to cover a lot of our personal lives. Um, we're going to have some fun, special guests and Roxy will always be reading a card for the collective yes i will i'm really excited about that so you guys our personal um handles if you guys want to follow us mine is roxy she r-o-x-y s-h-i-h on instagram on twitter it's roxy she 88 prisca what is yours uh, mine is uh prisca music prisca with a k music with a k on on all the platforms all right you guys i hope that you enjoyed this week's episode we're so excited to catch you next week and remember have a horny week our lovely goatees stay, stay horny. horny this podcast is hosted by Roxy and Prisca music by Abraham Kim artwork by Connie Yen please visit us at twohornygoats.com <laughs>